Someday soon we all must stand before the Lord. Oh yeah. Whose word is pure and so much sharper than a sword. Oh yeah. As I live, says the Lord, every tongue shall give their praise to me. And everyone shall bow each and every single knee. Oh yeah. Are you ready now to give an account? To your Savior and your God Where you suffer loss Or get a reward When you go before the beamer seat Oh yeah Uh-huh Alright Build upon the rock In everything you do Oh yeah Serve Him out of love And in the Spirit too Oh yeah The quality of your work He's gonna test with fire That day And then you will rejoice And in shame you'll shrink away Oh yeah Are you ready now To give an account To your Savior and your God Will you suffer loss Or get a reward before the beam of seeds, you will see him lifted high upon his throne. You, his servant, will stand before him all alone. When you see him, you're gonna fall down on your knees. He's your master. He's the one you have to please. Yeah. Are you ready now to give an account to your Savior and your God? Will you suffer loss or get a reward when you go before the people seed? Oh, yeah. All right. Oh, yeah. Been bought with a price to glorify his name. Oh, yeah. Not to live for self or seek fortune or some fame. Oh, yeah. You'll be recompensed for all that you have done someday. So live for life for the Lord each and every single day. Oh, yeah. Are you ready now to give an account to your Savior and your God? Will you suffer loss or get a reward when you go before the beamer seat? Are you ready now to give an account to your Savior and your God? Will you suffer loss or get a reward when you go before?
All right, uh, good evening to all of you. Could you turn your Bibles to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 15, verse 14. Romans chapter 15, verse 14. I tell you guys that my, on June 8th, my mother turned 70 years old. I don't look at her, I think of her as 70 years old. Can you imagine that? 70 years old. My mother's 70 years old. That means I'm getting old too. But, uh, yeah, it's pretty wild. But um, my dad's 71. Pretty funny. All right. Um, I just don't, I remember her just being like my age at one time. <laughs> you ever think about that? I was like, I remember one time we were, uh, you know, thinking back when, you know, 48, I'm not, that I'm not what I am now. It's like, boy, I thought 48 was pretty old. You know, now it's like, no, it's good. <laughs> it's good. It's not bad. But anyways, all of a sudden, you know, I was talking to my, talking to them both. His lifetime, life flew by fast. They go, oh, yeah, especially when you have kids. Anyways, you guys could all probably say amen to that. So, All right, should we have Romans chapter 15, verse 14? We're going to study Romans 15, 21 this evening. And uh, in this verse, Paul's going to cite another Old Testament passage. Actually, it's kind of interesting. Paul's going to cite the 70th... It's, this is going to be the 70th time and the last time in the Roman epistle that Paul quotes or cites from an Old Testament scripture. Some of them he's repeated. And uh, so this is what we're going to see here this evening. He's going to quote another Old Testament passage of scripture... And uh, to, he's going to cite Isaiah 52, 15, for th- and he's going to do it for three reasons. Because it alludes to the content of his gospel, and also it describes his ministry to the Gentiles, and it also supports his statement in Romans fifteen twenty. So we're going to see that Paul is going to use Old Testament scripture to support the fact that his ministry to the Gentiles was prophesied in the Old Testament. And we're going to see that we, as I, as I mentioned in the past, we as Gentile believers, remember Paul, Paul was an apostle of the Gentiles. We as Gentile believers are, the fact that we are members, uh, that we believe in Jesus Christ, uh, that and we praise God and we worship God, the, the living God, the true and living God, the living God of Israel, Jesus Christ, that is a fulfillment of pro- prophecy. We ourselves, us Gentile believers, we're prophesied in the Old Testament that we would come to a saving knowledge of the Jewish Messiah who we know is Jesus Christ. So this should be a, another interesting class that we uh, are going to engage in. And you should be at Romans 15, 14, as, as we normally do. Let's take that moment of silent prayer to prepare ourselves to hear the teaching of the Word of God. Remember, you cannot hear what the Spirit says if you're harboring any known sin in your stream of consciousness. If there's anything that's dirt, you know, bothering you, you should be uh, confessing it. Or if any sin that you've committed or you have some kind of... Anytime you get maybe some mental attitude sins, you've got to confess it so you can hear what the Spirit says. You've got to leave all your problems outside the four walls, concentrate on what the Spirit's going to say. And uh, it, when this is a time where we're to apply First John 1, 9 if necessary, and then we're to obey the command of Ephesians 5, 18. So confession of sin restores you to fellowship. You maintain that fellowship by obeying the voice of the Spirit who speaks to us through the teaching of the Word of God. And of course, as I've said many, many times in the past, and it bears repeating, apply First Peter 5, 7, which says, Cast all your anxieties upon the Lord, because He cares for you. And so with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to study your word, to study the Bible, the completed canon of Scripture, to, reveal, to learn of your plan for our lives, to be conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for the fact that you reveal through the Word and the Spirit your character and nature, the character and nature of your Son and the Spirit, and what you've accomplished for us in eternity past in electing us and predestinating us to be conformed to the image of your Son. We thank you for revealing the work of your Son to us, his uh, crucifixion, his death on the cross, both his spiritual and physical deaths, and also his resurrection and session at your right hand. We thank you for the Holy Spirit and all that he's done for us, and raising us up and seating us with your son at your son's at your right hand with your son in a position of power and victory. And we thank you, Father, for that victory that you've accomplished for us through your son and appropriated for us through the ministry of the Spirit. And we would pray, Father, that you would continue to give us insight and understanding into this great power and love that has been directed toward us. We lift up our congregation, Father, and we pray for all of us in this ministry. And we just pray, Father, that all of us we continue to grow in love toward each other and be uh, kind and compassionate and forgiving one another as you have forgiven us through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we also pray, Father, that as a result, we could glorify you. We also pray, Father, that you would uh, continue to guide and direct this ministry and as, as you would see fit. And we just know that we're your servants, so whatever you tell us to do, we will do. And so, Father, we just pray that you would also help those, your people who have ventured in here this evening in the chapel and those who might be listening right now in different parts of this country and the world on the Internet. We thank you for each and every one of them. And we pray, Father, that they would receive their necessary spiritual nourishment, that they would gain a greater love and appreciation through the, minute of the service of your character and nature and what you've accomplished for us, especially as Gentile believers, which this passage in Romans fifteen twenty one is all about. And we thank you, Father, for thinking of us and sending your Son to the cross, not only for the house of Israel, but also for the Gentiles. And we just thank you, Father, for gracing us out and making us members of the royal family of God. And we pray, Father, that you would give grace to the communicator. We know that he cannot do this this uh, service here this evening for your people without the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So we pray that the, your Son, through the power of the Spirit, would work mightily and powerfully through the communicator and also through your people in the audience. And we pray that as a result of this Bible class, with one voice, we would lift up and glorify and praise you and your Son, Jesus Christ. So it is in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, this evening we're going to study Romans fifteen twenty one as I noted earlier. And Paul's going to cite or quote, as we say, a, a, the Old Testament passage of Scripture, the, the 70th and final Old Testament Scripture he's going to quote in the book of Romans. He's going to quote Isaiah 15, 52, 15, because it alludes to the context of his gospel. This passage in Isaiah also describes his ministry to the Gentiles, and it also supports his teaching in Romans 15, 20. So again, we see that Paul is going back to his Old Testament to support his teaching. Now remember, remember what we're talking about. It's 57 AD in the city of Corinth. The New Testament had not been finished. In fact, the Gospels had not even been written. They weren't written, many scholars believe, that they weren't written until either, uh, the, Mark was the first one. You got in the 60s, in the 70s, and John, a lot of scholars place it between the 80s and 90s of the first century. The New Testament epistles were in the process of being written. So, and Revelation wasn't uh, written until uh, 96 AD, approximately around there, by the Apostle John in the island of Patmos. So the Bible that they used, remember the, the, uh, 
the completed canon of scripture, the letters that were written at that time of Paul, they were circulated, made copies. And over time, those New Testament writings were recognized as scripture. They were recognized as bearing the authority of the Holy Spirit. And so therefore, no ecclesiastical organization, not the Roman Catholic Church, determined what the canon of scripture was, uh, like the, uh, the the Da Vinci Code uh, baloney is all about. That's a joke. And the church, the Catholic Church had nothing to do with determining the canon of scripture. Christians throughout the centuries, non-denominational, they went throughout the centuries, and as the centuries went, went along, they started recognizing that certain books had divine authority. And so they were eventually included, uh, uh, recognized as being a part of the canon of Scripture. But we see that the, uh, the, the epistles were being uh, in the process of being written. So what that means is that if Paul wanted to support a piece of Scripture or one of his teachings, he couldn't go to Ephesians. He couldn't go to Romans. It wasn't written yet. He couldn't go to First uh, John. He couldn't go to any of these New Testament epistles, many of them, because they had not yet been written or they had not been uh, uh, known by all the Christians in the Roman Empire at that time. They had yet to be circulated. And so we see that Paul would use the Bible of his day, which was the Septuagint, or he would go to his Hebrew scriptures. Now, because he's writing to uh, Greek-speaking individuals in the city of Rome, and the Roman church was predominantly uh, Gentile, that means the Gentiles, who were not brought up in the Jewish scriptures, would not be able to speak Hebrew. They couldn't read the Hebrew Bible. In fact, many Jews in the first century couldn't read their Hebrew Bible. So what they did is they had the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. It was uh, brought to get, put together by approximately 70 uh, scholars, Jewish scholars in the city of Alexandria and 300 B.C. And that was the Bible. God used that Bible, that translation of the Hebrew, the original text that was inspired. The Septuagint wasn't inspired. What it was used, it was a translation like we would have our English translations. Back then, that was their translation of the Old Testament. And they used that. And we see that Paul would quote extensively from the Septuagint. And in places where it differed and the translation was was not accurate of the Hebrew, he would change the translation himself to suit his need and suit his purpose if he thought this particular translation in the, in the Septuagint was inaccurate. So he saw he would tweak things. So he is quoting Old Testament scripture. He was using the authority of the scriptures. Very important. Uh, pastors, they get their authority from the scriptures. The minute they deviate uh, from the scriptures... They have deviated from their take, their take, their authority is no longer uh, being uh, manifested. We get our authority from the Word of God, and all everything that we do as individuals and as a church, all church policy, everything is based upon what the Scriptures say, not what an ecclesiastical organization has to say, or what the, the latest uh, gossip is all about, or the latest uh, Madison Avenue techniques. It's all about a church and we, our lives, and the church itself, the local assembly, is to be run on the word of God. Now, another thing we need to bring up as we go further is that Paul and the, Old Te- and the New Testament believers in the first century, they knew their Old Testament. It's very sad that many Christians don't know their Old Testament. We did the book of Genesis. I don't know of too many churches that have done the book of Genesis in the last 10 years. Do a search on the internet sometime. We did 320 hours of the book of Genesis. That was a narrative. Now we're in Romans and we're coming to the end of Romans. And then we're going to go back to Jonah. 
And that Jonah will do that Old Testament book. So we, what I'm doing is trying to give you a good study on each on each side of the New Testament and the Old Testament and give you an educate you in the Old Testament scriptures. In fact, if you go back and I look at my records all the time, uh, from time to time, and I see that since I've been here in August of 2001, I think I've pretty much taught on every, I've gone to every, every book, all 66 books in the Bible. I've touched on every single book. I may not have gone through every chapter, but pretty much every book I've gone to in the, in the scriptures. And so, uh, we see Paul, he's gonna quote scripture to support a point. He's not gonna just give his opinion. He's going to give scripture to support his teaching. So, in Romans 15, 21, we see that this particular verse concludes the paragraph, or as we call, as many scholars call it, a pericope. And that particular paragraph, a pericope, began in Romans 15, 14, that contains Paul's discussion regarding his ministry to the Gentiles. Now look at Romans 15, 14, please. <clears throat> you have to bear with me. My voice is pretty much shot because I probably have like about two hours of sleep. I've had absolutely no sleep the last three, three days. But look at Romans 15, which butches your voice. Look at verse 14, Romans 15, 14. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. But I have written very boldly to you on some points, so as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given me from God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, or because of my, being a servant of Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. Things pertaining to God, referring to the items in verse 16. For, verse 18, For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. And now he develops in verse 19 what he means by word and deed. In the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Holy Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Now Jerusalem, as we saw, is not where he first started to proclaim the gospel. That was in Antioch, Syria. But he actually got his commission from the Lord Jesus Christ as he related to us in Acts chapter 22, he, as he related to the, the Jerusalem mob that had surrounded him and attempted to kill him. <laughs> he actually had the, the wherewithal and the poise this, to tell about his story about getting saved. And Jesus Christ, after he got saved, was uh, visited him in the Jewish temple. And Paul loved his Jewish people and he wanted to tell everybody about Jesus Christ. However, Jesus Christ said, they're not going to accept you, Paul. They don't want to listen to what you have to say. And I'm going to send you far, far away from these people because they will not accept your testimony. And he sent them far, far away to the Gentiles. He actually, as we saw in the last couple of evenings, the maps, he traveled uh, Jerusalem to Illyricum, which was in the northeast, uh, northeast above uh, Italy. That was the northern extremity of the Roman Empire in the first century. And he covered that ground. If you, if you calculate it, and I have in a map, it's, it's about 1,400 miles. And that's not how much he traveled. He was going in a circuitous route, and that means he was going back and forth through these different uh, 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 provinces. And so what he was doing was planting churches. And he would plant the church, start a foundation, 
and move on. And then he would let, the, uh, the, then he would check on them with letters and correspondence that way and send his emissaries like Timothy and Titus and Tychicus and Epaphroditus. He would send those men back and forth to make sure things were going uh, smoothly in those churches. So Paul was a church planter. And as we're seeing, he's coming to the end of that particular phase of his ministry. He is now coming into a different phase that Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to send him. He's got to deliver a gift to the poor saints in Jerusalem. A gift that was a monetary gift as well as a material gift because these Jewish believers in Jerusalem were destitute because they were kicked out of the synagogue and they had nothing. And so he started with his churches that he started in, in the Roman provinces of Macedonia, like the Philippians and the Thessalonians, and also Achaia, like the Corinthians. He would get, he gathered an offering from those Gentile believers and he would deliver it to Jerusalem to show their solidarity with these Jewish believers, to try to show, to promote uh, a, 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 as a token of unity between the Gentile and Jewish believers because there was a great tension between the two because the Jewish believers thought that, the, uh, that uh, they were abandoning the law, and especially Paul. So Paul is going, that's his next phase. That's a critical and pivotal phase of his ministry because he gets arrested as a result of delivering this gift and he gets arrested falsely accused of a crime, and then he's imprisoned unjustly for three years, and then he's finally shipped to Rome because he appealed to Caesar. He finally gets to Rome. He stays there for three years, uh, A.D. 60, 61, and 62. He's released in, in the fall of 62 A.D., and then he makes his way to Spain. And, and, and church, history, church history is very vague about it, but that's what Paul's plan was, was to deliver this gift and then go travel back to go to Rome, stop off in Rome, get their help, get refreshment from them, have fellowship with them. He finally gets to meet them. And then he wants them, he wants to solicit their help to get him to Spain so and get uh, help him monetarily and materially with everything he needs to go to Spain and evangelize Spain. So that was his game plan. And that's what he's writing at this particular time. He's poised to make a tremendous step in his ministry, a step that he knew that was going to cause him a lot of violence to his person. He almost got killed in this particular phase of his life. And if it wasn't for the prayers that he asked from the Roman believers and many other believers, he probably would have got killed. So he was delivered out of it. He knows he's coming into a new phase of his life and he wants to fill... He wants to fill in the Roman believers as to where he is and what his attitude toward ministry is. He's already given, given them the gospel in Acts, uh, Romans 1.16 to Romans 15.13, the main argument. They know what he teaches. They know his theology. And now he's talking to them about his attitude toward ministry and his plans. We're going to find out what his plans are. So he says in uh, verse 19, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named or known, but so, or the, he says, so not where Christ was already named, I mean, what I'm saying there, what he's saying there in the original, is that not where he's known. So he'd go to places where nobody knew what, who Jesus Christ was. And then he says, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. That's not pride. That means that he wants to cover as much territory and tell as many people about Jesus Christ. I gave the analogy. If Des Moines, Iowa was just filled with heathens, he'd stop in Des Moines, Iowa, 
But if he went to see, he wouldn't bother going to Cedar Rapids, Iowa, if there were Christians already there. He would go to places where they never heard of Christ, never heard of Jesus Nazareth, because he didn't want to build on another man's foundation. He didn't want to repeat like Peter's work or John's work. He wanted to let, they, they did their work, I don't want to build on that, because I want to cover more ground. I don't want to repeat what they've already done. So that's what he's talking about here. Then, to support that statement, he says in verse 21, But as, is, as it is written, They who had no news of him, Jesus Christ, shall see him. And they who have not heard shall understand. So this quotation is from Isaiah 52, 15. And it appears here in Romans 15, 21. And it stands in direct contrast with the idea of Paul building on another man's foundation and proclaiming the gospel in places where it was already known, he was already known. Now, when it says as it was as it is written, that means it, that that particular phrase is introducing an Old Testament quotation, which I've already cited, Isaiah fifty two fifteen. And this quotation indicates a comparison with Paul's previous statement in verse twenty that he aspired to proclaim the gospel in those regions of the earth where Christ was never named are never known, in order that he would not build on another man's foundation. So I want you to hold your place. Go to Isaiah chapter 50, uh, 52. Look at verse 13. Isaiah fifty-two thirteen. Isaiah 52, 13. Now, this is one of the most, uh, what can we say, one of the most awe-inspiring passages. This is a Messianic psalm. That means it's, a, it's, a, it's an Old Testament, a Messianic uh, passage. It's, a, it's a, what it is, it's, tell, it's a prophecy about Jesus Christ. It's called the Suffering Servant Passage. And what I'm going to do is, though Paul only quotes Isaiah 52, Verse, uh, verse 15. I want to, I want to read the, the whole, the whole passage. It goes from Isaiah 52, 13, all the way through Isaiah 53. I just want to read it because it's really beautiful and, 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 and show you this whole passage in the, in the context in which Paul took this quotation and how this, how it fits into the entire, um, uh, pericope. Look at, uh, look at Isaiah 52, 13. Behold, my servant will prosper. Speaking of Jesus Christ. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. He sits right now at the right hand of the Father. Just as many people are astonished at you, my people, this is speaking of Christ, so his appearance was marred more than any man. When he hung on the cross, his appearance was marred more than any man. This was fulfilled to Christ. And his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what is not, what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. And Paul is quoting from that right there. Now keep going. It continues on in Isaiah 53, 1. I want to show it to you. He says, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, Jesus Christ, grew up before him, the Father, like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground, a sinner amongst sinners. He had no stately form of majesty, when you saw Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, he looked just like any other Jewish man. And he didn't have long hair like uh, John Lennon from 1970, okay? He had short hair. The Jews wore the hair short. And he looked just like any other Jew. In fact, when they try to identify him to arrest him, 
uh, Judas had to go over and kiss him. It was a sign that this is the guy. Meaning you couldn't distinguish Jesus from other Jewish men. He looked just like any other Jewish men, Peter, James, and John. So Judas had to identify him. So there was nothing. Jesus didn't walk around with a halo around his head. Like they uh, portray him in some of those uh, 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 Renaissance paintings. So it says he had, nor his parents, it says, it says no, he had no stately form of majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. So he wasn't charismatic in that sense as far as looks. He didn't look like Brad Pitt or me. He was, dis- <laughs> he was despised. They still have a sense of humor. He was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. So Jesus Christ was not very popular. And he was for a time, and then they turned against him. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised. And we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us is turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. And like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, meaning he kept silent, he was, he was dumb before his shearers. And like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, He was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out from the land of the living for the transgression of my people, the Jews, to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with the wicked men. He he died on a Roman cross between two, two thieves. Yet he was with a rich man in his death. He was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Hey, when you're evangelizing people... Look at this stuff. This is imp- this will really get. I mean, use the sword of the spirit when you evangelize. Show them Isaiah fifty-two, and then go where show see it in the Gospels where it's fulfilled. Have you ever done that? And that's what you do to evangelize, and that's why you got to know your Old Testament, and then you can show them in the New Testament how it's fulfilled in the Gospels. And I'll tell you right now, like take Isaiah fifty-three and take Psalm twenty-two. I mean, I, I when you do it, it's amazing. The, the, the Holy Spirit. Really, when you use the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, it really makes an impact on people and show them how these things were prophesied. Isaiah wrote these things a thousand years before Christ. Then look what it goes on to say. It says, because uh, in verse 9, his grave was assigned with the wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence. He was innocent. Nor was there any deceit in his mouth. He wasn't a liar. But the Lord was pleased, the Father, to crush him, the, the Son, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he, the Lord, will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, because he endured substitutionary spiritual death in our place, he will see it, the Father, and be satisfied, propitiation. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured himself to, out to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many, and he interceded for the transgressors. So, when Paul's quoting in Romans fifteen twenty one, Isaiah fifty two fifteen, that's the setting in which Paul took this particular quotation. It's called the suffering servant 
passage. It's called the suffering servant passage. So look at, look, go back to Isaiah 52, verse 13. Isaiah 52, 13. Behold, my servant, speaking of Christ, will prosper and he'll be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Listen to what he's saying, because this is what Paul's quoting from. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what they had not been told, them they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. Now that passage we just read, Isaiah 52, verses 13 through 15, comes near the beginning of the fourth servant passage, which we just read in detail. And it refers to Jesus Christ's impact on many nations and kings which makes it applicable to Paul's ministry because that's what Paul ended up going to kings and different uh, in different nations. He went with the gospel and he gave the message of the gospel which is about Jesus Christ. Now, this quotation here in Isaiah 52:15 and Romans 15:21 marks the 70th as I said earlier in the evening and 70th and final time that Paul will quote from the Old Testament scriptures, which includes his use of some Old Testament passages more than once. And as I said many times, one of the great, the great things about the book of Romans, it's, one of my, it's probably my favorite book. And the book of Romans, well, the great thing about it is it's so in-depth, it's, it's a cathedral, a Christian doctrine, and we see that Paul, more than any other epistle, quotes the Old Testament more in Romans than he does any of his epistles. It's a magnificent book the Apostle Paul has written for us and given to the church. And too bad, too bad it's not appreciated by the church in the 21st century. Now this Paul's quoting exactly from the Septuagint translation of Isaiah 52.15. Now Isaiah 52.15 supports Paul's previous statement in verse 20 in which he wrote that he aspired, remember, to proclaim the gospel in those regions of the earth where Christ was never known in order that he would uh, not build upon another man's foundation. Look at verse 20. Look at Isaiah, uh, Romans, go back to Romans. Look at Romans 15, 20. He says in Romans 15, 20, Thus I aspire to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named or known, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. Now to support that, he's going to quote Isaiah 52, 15, which actually, by quoting it, this particular uh, passage alludes to the content of his gospel, which is what? Christ. And it describes his purpose and his modus operandi of his ministry on behalf of the Gentiles. Because in this passage, Isaiah 52, 15, the individuals who have not had the gospel proclaimed to them and have not heard it yet were king, are kings and, and nations. So Paul, listen to me, when Paul looked through his Old Testament scriptures, he saw his ministry there. Jesus said, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles, not to the house of Israel. Now, now think about this. That must have been devastating to Paul. Why? Why was it devastating to Paul? Anybody know? What is that? He loved his country. It'd be like, it'd be like going, it'd be like going, you got your hometown. I come from Norwood, Massachusetts. And it'd be like going, it'd be going like going, uh, you know, you love your family, your friends and everything, and you want to give them the gospel. And Jesus said, no, you've got to get out of town. In fact, Jesus was run out of his hometown. The first message that Jesus ever taught, the first message he ever taught, they ran him out of town. <laughs> his hometown. And Jesus said, a prophet is never welcomed in his hometown. 
I remember when I was uh, back at GBC in, in, uh, in Massachusetts, and I was debating what I should do. Should I wait for God, or should, does God want me to move and start my own church somewhere in Massachusetts, my hometown or whatever? And I remember saying, I hear, remember the passage, a prophet is never welcome in his hometown. If I started a church in my hometown, they would probably kill me. Trust me. My family would probably lead the way. And this is what, this is, you know, so uh, we see that Paul, he had to learn that he, basically his home, he had two hometowns, you know. He had Tarsus. That's where he got his secular education. That's where he grew up. But he, his, really his, his spiritual hometown was Jerusalem. Because remember, he sat under the great theologian, Jewish theologian of his day, Gamaliel. And, that's, and he was the big star, the young up-and-coming star in Judaism. And here Jesus tells him in Acts chapter 22, if you can uh, hold your place, let me show you real quick. We, st- we touched on it last evening. But look at Acts chapter 22. Acts chapter 22. And look at verse... Okay, yeah. Look at verse... um, Verse 17. Acts chapter 22, verse 17. Now, this is what he says. It happened... Paul's... Remember, he's giving his... He's talking to the Jewish people. There's a mob in front of him. They just try to kill him. The The Roman military saved his butt. Okay. One of the things that Paul, as we get when we get to Romans fifteen thirty and thirty one, he prays to the he asks the Roman believers, pray for me, for, that I get rescued from the people, the the the, uh, the disobedient Jews in Jerusalem. Paul knew that he was running into a lion's den, so he asked the Romans to pray for him, so he wouldn't get killed. So that, you know, so what we see, he's standing in front. The, the guard just saved him, and now he's giving a testimony. Okay, but look at it says he's telling them in verse 17 and it ha- Acts chapter 22 verse 17 and it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance and I saw him Christ saying to me make haste get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And then he said and that, that's his hometown that's basically the town he is, a, he is in his spiritual hometown that's the place where he wanted to start to have his ministry. He loved the Jewish people. He is a patriot. He was, the, he was such a patriot that he killed Christians. He, put, he, he had Christians put to death. He held the cloaks of those who murdered Stephen, the first martyr of the church who was a deacon. So Paul loved his country, no doubt about it. And as I've been telling you in the Roman series, throughout this Roman series, Paul you know, must have been a deep, deep-seated uh, grief that he had over the Jewish people. We saw that in Romans 9. And also, it must have been really tough for him not being permitted by the Lord to give the gospel to his own people because they wouldn't listen to him. They couldn't take him. They ran him out of town. Look, at this in verse 19. And I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your, your witness, Stephen, was being shed... I also is standing by, approving, watching out for the coats of those who are slaying him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Keep listening. Look, look, look at what happens. They listen to him up to this statement, the Jewish mob. And they said, raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. 
And as they were crying out and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust in the air, the commander, the Roman commander, ordered him to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting against him that way. And But when they stretched out with thongs, stretched him out with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman, a Roman citizen, and uncondemned? Because the Roman soldier could get killed, executed for scourging a Roman citizen. You couldn't scourge a Roman citizen. So notice Paul, back to the point. Paul is being told to leave the nation he loved dearly, go somewhere else and give him the gospel. They're not going to listen to you, Paul. That's what just happened. What a heartbreak that must have been. But Jesus knew, Paul's learning, Paul was learning there what Jesus already knew, that a prophet is never welcome in his hometown. Look at Luke. Go to the Gospel of Luke. Look at, look at Luke chapter four, uh, chapter 4, verse 14. Luke, four, Luke chapter 4, verse 14. So Paul is learning a tough lesson, and it must have been heartbreaking. I can't go to my own people. They won't accept me. They're going to run me out of doubt. Look at what happened to Jesus. Luke four fourteen, And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, his hometown, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and he stood up to read. Now they have scrolls. I wish I had a picture of it. They have scrolls. That's how They didn't have books like we have, like the Bible. That didn't come till later. Christians actually developed the codices, books. But they had a scroll. And today they do it, the Jews do it today. And they open the scroll. Jesus... We know that Jesus was literate. See, there's this big question. Was Jesus literate? He darn right he was literate. He could read Hebrew and he goes to the scroll and actually he didn't have, he didn't have chapter, they didn't have chapter markings and all that stuff and verse numbers and everything. They didn't have that. He went right to the place where it was. And he could, he, we know he definitely spoke Aramaic because he spoke it on the cross. He spoke Hebrew and read Hebrew because he knew his Old Testament Bible, obviously. And also, undoubtedly, he probably spoke Greek because Greeks, Greek, Koine Greek was the common language in the Roman Empire. And even around Judea, there was a lot of speaking people, Greek-speaking individuals, especially in Nazareth as, as well. So it, sa- it's, it says it, uh, in verse 17, And the book of the prophet Isaiah, Jesus loved quoting Isaiah, so did Paul. In the book of Romans, he quoted Isaiah a lot. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to Jesus. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written. The Spirit, now look what happens. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set free those who are oppressed. That's quoting Isaiah 61.1. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, 61.2. Now he stops there in Isaiah because he doesn't go further because it talks about the future in the later verses in Isaiah 61.3-4. Because it's, he's reading this part because it applies to his ministry at that particular time. Now look at it says in verse 20. And he closed the book and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Interesting. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. 
Now that's arrogance, isn't it? No, it's the truth. Because <laughs> you think about what they were thinking of. This guy is arrogant. He's just the carpenter's son. He's fulfilled this? and not pro- What does this guy think he is? Well, look, it says in verse 22, And all were speaking well of him, and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, No doubt you will pro- quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. That's what Paul learned when they kicked him out of Jerusalem. Basically, it was his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months when a great famine came over all the land and yet Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land uh, Zarephath, excuse me, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow, and there, there were Gentiles, and there were not to the house of Israel. He went, and there were many lepers in Israel at the, in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed. Only Naaman the Syrian, a Gentile. Now the people in the audience are going to remember, he's he's really hitting these Jews that were sitting in the synagogue. He just rebuked them for their unbelief. Look goes on verse twenty eight, and all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. One minute, he's the greatest thing since sliced bread. And the next minute, look how fast they turned on him. (laughs) And then look what goes on in verse 29. And they got up and they drove him out of the city. And they led him to the brow of the hill. This is the Son of God, people. So if they did that to the master, they should teach this at every seminary. And every time you guys want to be a pastor, just say, okay, if they did this to the master, guys, they're going to do it to you. Trust me. A servant is not greater than his master. Look at verse 29. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which the city had been built in order to throw him down off the cliff. But passing through their midst, he just said, I'm getting out of here. I'll walk right through you. And he walked right through, went his way right through their midst. So why did I go there? Because Paul was not allowed to go to the, his own people, which crushed him. He was told to go to the Gentiles. His testimony wouldn't be accepted by his own people, the Jewish people. So when he went to this Old Testament, he sat there. What is Jesus doing here? What is the Lord doing? He's sending me to the Gentiles, and he started to search the scriptures. He looked in Isaiah 52, and he found his ministry. He said, that's what he wants me to do. The Spirit guided him and said, this is what you are to do, Paul. This is what I want you to do. Go to the Gentiles. Tell them about me. I got the other guys going to the house of Israel. I know it's breaking your heart, but go to these people. Tell them about me. Tell them all over the place. He found his ministry and his purpose and destiny in life through the scriptures. Jesus said, just go to the Gentiles. I'm going to send you far away to the Gentiles. But he also, get through the Spirit in the, in the Old Testament, he gave Paul understanding as to what God would want him to do. He was a man who was sensitive to the Spirit's guidance and direction, and he followed the Spirit's guidance and direction, and he found his ministry, I'm going to the Gentiles. It's predicted that they would be pro- the gospel would be proclaimed. So he's quoting Isaiah 52, 15, and Romans 15, 21, and he, when he's doing that, he's saying, my ministry to the Gentiles, you Jewish people, you Gentiles people, 
it was predicted in the Old Testament. What I'm doing, my ministry, proclaiming Christ, from where places that he was not known, from Jerusalem to Illyricum, all those Roman provinces, all those major metropolitan cities in those provinces, I am, my ministry was predicted. And as I said before, we have been predicted that we, we Gentile believers would worship Jesus Christ and God the Father. We're in Scripture. We're there. Now go back to Romans 15.21. So in Romans 15.21, to validate his assertion in Romans 15.20, that he aspired to proclaim the gospel in those regions of the earth where Christ was never known, in order that he would not build upon another man's foundation, Paul quotes exactly from the Septuagint translation of Isaiah 52.15. Now look at 52.15, he says, it is as it is written, they who had no... And by the way, when it says, as it is written, the verb there, grapho, in the Greek has a perfect tense. And in what it says, it says, what was written in the Old Testament in Isaiah's day is applicable to our day. That's what it says. Now, the, 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 the Greek-speaking individual get that. I need to bring that out to you because I want you to know that's what it said in the original. The, uh, that's what my job is, to bring these things out, to dig these things out. So he said, they who had no news of him shall see. What does that mean? They who had no news emphatically declares that unregenerate Gentiles, unsaved Gentiles, had never heard about Jesus Christ prior to Paul's proclaiming the gospel to them. Of him refers to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the content of the gospel, along with his death and resurrection. Uh, you can uh, look at Romans 1, uh, chapter, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 for that. Now, when he says, shall see... That's the word orao, the verb orao. It's, refer, it's used in a metaphorical sense to the, uh, of the Gentiles accepting by faith the gospel message about Jesus Christ. And it's in the future tense. And that's a predictive future. And it indicates that from the perspective of Isaiah, who wrote this, uh, Isaiah 52, 15, centuries before Paul, it, this predictive future in Romans 15, 21 of the verb orao, translated shall see, it speaks of, from Isaiah's perspective, that it will come to pass. It will take place. That the Gentiles will accept by faith the message of the gospel concerning the, the, the Jewish Messiah. They who have not heard, that also emphatically declares that unsaved Gentiles had never heard about Jesus Christ prior to Paul's proclaiming the gospel to them. Shall understand is the word sinimi, and it refers also in a metaphorical sense to the Gentiles. Comprehending my faith, the message of the gospel about Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. The future tense is another predictive future, indicating from the perspective of Isaiah, the prophet, it will come to pass, or it will take place, that the Gentiles will accept by faith the message of the gospel concerning the Messiah. Now, there's two statements we just see there in the passage. They who had no news of them shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. They're speaking of the same thing. They both speak of the Gentiles accepting by faith the gospel message concerning the Messiah. What that is, when, when this, they, they're, they're, very, they're, similar, they're basically synonymous statements. What he's doing is he's writing rhetorically. When he wants to emphasize something, he writes rhetorically. So this, these two statements are pretty much the same th saying the same thing. Now that he's writing rhetorically here is indicated by the verbs in the passage, which are translated had news and have heard, and both of them are negated by the emphatic negative adverb u, and both refer to the same act of hearing the gospel message. So when he says, they who had no 
knew, had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. He's speaking of the Gentiles. And it, both of them speak of them hearing the gospel, listening to the gospel, and acting on faith on it. The verb arao, which shall see, in the word sinimi, shall understand, both refer to accepting the gospel message by faith. That's how you get saved. Faith in Jesus Christ. How do you get saved? Faith in Jesus Christ. Who, how, why, what the, why is that? Why is that the case? Why is that easy? You should know this. Because Jesus Christ has all the, all the merit. The Father accepts only those human beings, those sinners, through His Son, Jesus Christ. So, because of the object of our faith, Jesus Christ, who is impeccable, and because of the object of our faith's work on the cross, His deaths on the cross, that's why we're saved. That means it's not how much faith you have. It's who you have your faith in that saves you. So if anybody ever tells you, and you will run into those people because God will test you. He tests us all. If someone says you can lose your salvation, the first thing you out of your mouth was, that's ridiculous because we weren't saved on our own merits in the first place. So what sin could we possibly cause or do, including murder, that could cause us to lose our salvation? We weren't saved on our own merits in the first place. You will be tested, people. It, God does that. He gives you the scripture, and now he's going to test you. You learn about the doctrine of love. I do. You will be tested. That's the way it goes. I, I, I always, every time I teach something, oh, I know it's coming down the pike down here because the Holy Spirit has us on this, and now love is going to, our love will be tested. Our faith is going to be tested maybe somewhere. So if you're listening to the Holy Spirit and you're not out of fellowship, you can hear these things. You could see things going. I was talking to Titus at lunch, and, and Titus would be mentioning, like, you would be, I would be on some particular thing, and then he would read something, or he heard some other guy say the exact same thing. And what was it, uh, Derry Jeremiah or something, or what did Chuck Swindoll? And it was like, that's what Bill was saying the other night. You know, it's like, and I didn't call Chuck up, and I didn't call David Jeremiah up. I didn't call any of those guys up. They don't know me, and they wouldn't care to know me. But th that's what happens. It's the Holy Spirit. Who's doing that? Well, Bob McLaughlin. Some of you say, well, Bob was just talking about something, and you just said something right on that, something to that. I said, well, that's the Holy Spirit talking. He's talking to the church. He's talking to the church. And that brings up another thing. You know, people who listen, and, and he was a great Bible teacher, Bob Thiem. A lot of people are Bob Thiem tapers, and they listen to him from 1965. And there's nothing wrong with that. He's got great, great stuff. Especially when I like to hear him when he's in 64 and he's making fun of the Beatles. I think it's pretty funny. But, you know, that message back then has a message for the church back in 65. And if you think you're going to grow to spiritual maturity, listen to a guy who taught something in 1970 and 1965. You're, you're, so, you're so deceived. You know, the spirit is speaking. I'm sorry, I might not be as powerful as Bob Thiem or some other these, these great heavies of the past, and that's no problem. But the point is... The Spirit speaking to the guys today who are pastors that are living. And when I'm dead and I kick off, somebody else will come in and the Spirit will be speaking to them. So you, the Spirit is speaking to this church and he's not speaking to another pastor from another generation. It's fun to listen to another generation, but the Spirit is saying something to the church in our day and age through my contemporaries and myself. Now to summarize, let's wrap this up because... 
It's getting near the end here, and I want to go see my Celtics play Game 7. Don't anybody stop me. If I, you see me running out the door, sprinting out the door, because it's Game 7, guys, and I want my Celtics to win. So you better be praying for my Celtics, because I'm going to be very sad if we get kicked, like the other night. To wrap this up, look at Romans 15.21. Look it up. Romans 15.21. He says, but as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see him, Christ. And they, they the Gentiles, who have not heard of him, Christ, shall understand. And we have heard and we have understand. Look at that. It's true. It's fulfilled in our days. We had no news of him. Now we see. We had, we had not heard of them, but now we understand about him. We're a fulfillment of prophecy, people. Are we not Gentiles? Yes. To summarize what Paul just said there, he's citing Isaiah 52, 15 for three reasons. First, it alludes to the content of his gospel, Jesus Christ, the suffering, the suffering servant. Two, it describes the purpose and the modus operandi of his ministry. What does that mean? His method of operation. So the second reason why he quotes Isaiah 52, 15 is that it describes the purpose and modus operandi of his ministry on behalf of the Gentiles because in this passage, the individuals who have not had the gospel proclaimed to them and have not heard it yet are kings and nations. And thirdly and finally, it supports his statement. Isaiah 52, 15 supports his statement in Romans 15, 20 that he would not build upon another man's foundation because this Old Testament passage, Isaiah 52, 15, speaks of exposing people to the gospel who have not yet heard about it. And that is the end of this evening's class. And if the rapture doesn't come, or the Lord doesn't kill me, I will see you all Sunday morning, 9 o'clock. So with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray. Father, we just thank you for this time to study your word. We thank you for each and every individual that's in the chapel and those who might be listening on the internet or will view it at a later date on the website. We pray, Father, that they would receive their necessary spiritual nourishment, that they would be encouraged, rebuked if necessary, instructed in righteousness, and would continue to grow as a result of this message and a greater understanding of your, uh, and appreciation for your so, uh, our so great salvation and the plan of, uh, your plan, Father, from eternity past to save not only Jews, but also Gentiles through faith in your Son. We also pray, Father, that you would give us traveling mercies on the way home for those in the chapel and for those who are, uh, and also after class, that you would, uh, through the Spirit, empower the fellowship, guide the fellowship. And our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.